Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Today we're continuing to work through the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. In this passage, Paul is reminding the church about the character of his ministry among that church as as he challenges them to be mindful of their own Christian walk. If you've got your Bibles, open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This morning we'll begin reading there in verse 5. If you're able, would you please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's Word from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning there in verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor were they pretexts for greed. God is a witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you as believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the call to walk in a particular way. Help us to walk with wisdom. Help us to walk in this world in a way that is pleasing to you. Help us to celebrate and embrace the calling that you have placed upon us as we seek your kingdom and your glory. Lord, bless this this time in your word today, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, last week we talked about the fact that this this characteristic of the Roman world is that one of the things that would often happen is that is that itinerant people would come into town and would try to would try to entertain the 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 people. They didn't have movie theaters, they didn't have all the different ways we have to be entertained today. And so you would frequently have these itinerant philosophers and magicians who would come into town, they'd use their rhetorical skills all in an attempt to make a dishonest living. And this was something that Paul and his companions always had to ensure that there was a very clear distinction between their gospel work and the less than ethical work of these other rhetoricians. So there are places where we encounter in Paul's letters where he takes this defensive posture. Or he's, he, he's trying to defend his ministry, he's trying to defend his time with the churches. And, and in essence what he's saying is that you guys need to remember I'm not like those guys. We're not like those people. We're not like those folks. And he's reminding the church here that he didn't take any payment from them, even though he wouldn't have been wrong for doing so. He even says that here. Uh, Paul doesn't take any issue with supporting its leaders. He even says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. But he also recognized that in a situation where he just came to town, to help get a church started, that it wasn't feasible for that little fledgling church to provide him with any kind of support. And so we know Paul was a tradesman. Paul has talked about in his other letters that, that he made tents, he made awnings, he did those sort of things for a, for a living to help support him while he does his missionary work. 
And so he would use that trade to provide for the material needs of, that he had while he was investing in the work of the local church. And so Paul would work during the day doing his trade, and then at night he would have meetings and teaching and things like that where he would share the gospel and, and make disciples and all those sort of things. All this is to point out to the church that their message should be different from the message of the culture and that their behavior should be different from the behavior of the culture. There is a set-apart nature to these things. There ought to be a clear distinction between Jesus' followers and all the rest of those itinerant people, all those other voices that are out there. There, there ought to be a very clear distinction between the good news of the gospel and wherever the, the world is, is teaching, whatever the world is, is instructing, whatever the world is selling in any given moment. That was true in Paul's day, and it continues to be true in our day. There ought to be a distinction between who we are as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and whatever the world outside is selling. But we also need to understand that it's got to be more than just an information transfer. There's got to be more to this thing than just me communicating information to you. There's gotta be more to this experience than just your Sunday school teacher feeding you a lesson. There's gotta be more to it. If you're a podcast listener, if you're watching stuff on YouTube, there's gotta be more to it than just you consuming that information and putting it to work inside of your, your intellectual tank. There's gotta be more to it. And all of those distinctions are worked out within this community that we call the church. And Paul emphasizes here, there in verse 12, that he encouraged the church, he encouraged these folks to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of God. And say, man, that's a, that's a high calling, to walk in a manner that's, that's worthy of God. I mean, you could probably walk in a manner that's worthy of your local politician, that's not a hard, that's not a big ask at all, Pastor. You, you could walk in a manner maybe worthy of a friend. You could walk in a manner worthy of a teacher. But Paul here says to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. That's a very high calling. But the good news is that he doesn't leave us in the dark about what this should look like. And in these verses here leading up to verse 12, he gives us a really clear idea of what it looks like to walk in a manner that's worthy of God. He gives us some principles that should help govern and guide our own lives. And the first thing we want to draw attention to is the fact that a walk that is worthy ought to be a sacrificial walk. A worthy walk is a sacrificial walk. You know, Paul is frequently very candid about what it cost him to follow Jesus. Uh, you can read in places where he talks about the suffering, he talks about the trials, he talks about the things that, that he had to endure. But he doesn't do it in a boastful way. He doesn't say, you guys won't believe the suffering that I endured for Jesus. You should want to be like me because of all the trials that I endured. He's not boasting about his trials. He's not boasting about his suffering. But he's being transparent about the struggles that he experienced as, as he follows Jesus. And he wants people to understand that following Jesus, serving the church, making disciples is not an easy process. It is not something that, that comes without effort. It is not something that comes naturally. And here, Paul is not making a list of what he gave up. He's not talking about all the suffering, all the struggles, all the times that he had to do without. But he is reminding the church that he didn't really take anything from them. 
He didn't take a salary. He didn't take income from them. He didn't do anything like that, even though he had a right to. He says he could have made demands, but he didn't do that. He sacrificed for their sake. You know, we live in a society today where serving Christ it, it still isn't completely frowned upon. We live in the, in the buckle of the Bible belt. There, there, it's, it's still okay to be a Christian in, in our community, although I think we can see the winds are beginning to blow a different direction. I can, in fact, assure you that it's probably just a matter of time for us before it's no longer a matter of convenience to be a follower of Jesus. Just this week, I heard about a school board in Arizona Arizona, we look at it politically, it's kind of a red state, uh, so, so we understand some things about Arizona. It's one of those sunbelt states where people are retiring to and those sort of things. A school board in Arizona has banned student teachers from a conservative Christian college. Not because those students came in and were teaching Bible to the elementary kids. They banned the students from the school because the school took a particular stance on certain cultural hot-button issues. And so the school board said, because of this college's stance on these things, we will not allow students from this college to come into our school system and do their student teaching. Now, just to set the context of this, we sit here under the shadow of a conservative Christian university right up here on top of the hill, Covenant College. They're a PCA college, and so we would agree with them as a Southern Baptist church on a lot of doctrinal cultural issues. We'd get along really well on a lot of those things. So imagine living in a county like Walker County that says, you know what, we're not going to take students from Covenant College anymore to do our student teaching. Imagine hearing that. This is, the, this is the equivalent. This is what's happening just in Arizona. Now, what's gonna happen here? We understand there's probably court battles coming. I mean, I'm sure that there is somebody somewhere that has got a lawsuit ready to go to sue this school board for these actions. But the problem with these court battles is that they don't happen quickly. You're talking about something like this that could take a year, two, three years to work its way through the courts. You're talking about one of these issues is something that could at some point in time end up on the steps of the Supreme Court over the next few years. So in the meantime, while that's happening, this school district is doing what? Actively discriminating against students from a Christian university. Not because of the content of what they teach, but simply because of their affiliation with a school that holds on to biblical virtues when it comes to marriage and family. That's what's happening. And I know, we look at what's taking place and we say, Pastor, Arizona is on the other side of the country. They border California. That's a long way over there to Arizona. But I really do believe that these are just more salvos that are being fired in a battle that's been going on for generations. And these kids that we just sent back here, they're the ones who are gonna be dealing with the consequences of these battles that are being fought today. It's just a matter of time, wait and see. There is coming a day where being a Christian, where following Jesus is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you credibility. You really believe that story about the resurrection? You know people don't just rise from the dead. You really believe that about, about virgin birth? Do you not know how science works? Do you really believe that whole story? You really believe that, that a man by, by simply his voice could, could calm storms and, and walk across water? Do you really believe those things? If you believe those things, you can't possibly have a, have a solid IQ. 
You believe in fairy tales. Those are the things you're going to hear. It's going to cost you credibility. It could cost you a career. How many people are going to be forced to resign from their position or be terminated from their position because they refuse to sign off on certain issues? For some, following Jesus might even cost family. You say, man, that's a, that's a high cost. You know, we encounter the Bible interesting words like Jesus telling us as his followers to take up our cross. I mean, we read that and say, what does that mean? Taking up your cross, that, that it carries the sense of sacrifice, that, that following Jesus is not something that, that we just walk into willy-nilly, that following Jesus has a cost associated with it. And I'm going to say this, and this is probably going to hurt some feelings, and that's okay because I love you too much to not hurt your feelings right here. We've got to get to a place where cross-bearing means more than the decision to sleep in or go to church on time change Sunday. You think about that. I woke up this morning, I kid you not, and I promise you that pastors all across our area woke up this morning, said it is raining and it is time change Sunday. People are gonna stay home. Isn't that unfortunate? The Bible says take up your cross. And, and we're in a place where we're, this is seen as a sacrifice? We got brothers and sisters who are in dark corners of the world and they gather for worship at risk to their very lives. Just meeting together in a home or in a church raises the suspicion of authorities. And here in America, we're prone to skip church if the weather isn't quite right. A worthy walk is a sacrificial walk. Secondly, though, we see that a worthy walk is a shared walk. If you look at verses 7 and 8 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, most translations puts a, puts a punctuation mark in between those verses. They put a period between those verses, which, which implies that there's two different thoughts, that there's, a, that there's two different ideas that are, that are, that are encountered there. And... and Ultimately, though, what Paul is doing here is he's using one broad image to, to paint a picture for us. And I understand that some people are uncomfortable with what he's saying here, but Paul is using the image of breastfeeding as an analogy for our commitment to one another. And again, this is where our cultures are different. But the reality is, is it's harder to paint a, a more clear picture than what Paul is painting here. Of, of this sharing with one another. And again, it's even more dynamic, more than just the physical nutritional dynamic of what happens in the process of a mother feeding her baby. A mother feeding her child has a time commitment that's associated with it. Again, uh, there's, there's something about having to get up in the middle of the night and, and you're the only person who can, who can feed that baby at that moment. That is a commitment of time. That is a commitment of effort. That is a, a shared commitment that, that's experienced there as the mother shares herself with her baby. So when we think about walking in a walk that's worthy of God, we have to recognize the fact that this is a shared journey for us as the church. We are walking together. We are serving one another. But let's contrast this with our experience within the church today. Our tendency in today's church is to approach the church from a transactional standpoint. Not a shared commitment, but a transactional standpoint. And I'll tell you this, we are definitely not better off for this. If your only connection to the body of Christ 
is a worship service, then you're, you may be approaching this place as a, as a transaction. You come in, take your seat, exchange your hour, hour and 20 minutes, whatever you put in the offering plate, you exchange it for something. What are you exchanging it for? Maybe you're exchanging it for a good feeling. I went to church today, I feel good about myself. Maybe you're exchanging it for a cleaner conscience. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really do all that great this week, so I'll come to church and get my, you know, get my act cleaned up today when I come to church. Maybe it's the spectacle of live music or, or, or the hope that you're going to hear some sort of engaging speech or, or see some sort of hilarious video that was published and produced by our, our, our next-gen team. Maybe you get some sort of experience like that, and you leave, and you come back, the next time, for another transaction. If your experience in the body of Christ is only in a worship service, that is not a shared walk. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but it is not a shared walk. It is not a shared experience. And Paul even adds some stakes to the, at the end of verse 8. He said, you had become very dear to us. Why is there a motivation to share life together? Because of the affection that we have for one another within the body of Christ. We desire to spend time together. We, despite, we desire to be in relationships with one another. We desire to, to do things together. Now, last three years, we've had an excuse. Man, COVID. Man, we can blame everything for COVID, can't we? My grass needs mowing. It's COVID's fault. <laughs> Because <laughs> COVID caused global warming or something that caused the February weather to make my grass grow, and so now I need to mow before I ought to have to mow. It's got to be COVID's fault. Can I just say this? At some point in time, we've got to stop blaming the pandemic for our behavior and start making new habits that are God-honoring and kingdom-building. We've got to stop blaming things and start redeveloping those habits that are God-honoring and kingdom-building. And that happens when we share our walk with one another. I want to tell you one of the neatest things I've seen over the last year is our monthly men's meeting, the M46 meeting. If you've not been, it's really an awesome time for, for men to come together. It's not just for dads. It's not just for husbands. It's for any men uh, because if you're a grandpa, we really benefit from grandpas in that room just as much as, as that shared connection with one another. Those meetings are short. I mean, they only take an hour, hour and 15 minutes, but man, they pack a punch because in the middle of those meetings, men sit around a table and they, they encourage, they challenge one another. How did, how did you do this month? What was this experience like for you? There's that shared encouragement that's happening around the table. And listen, it's not happening in here. Not once have I seen this morning a group of men circle up and ask about how their walk was with Jesus this week. I hadn't seen that yet. I hadn't seen that happen. But I know that at that M46 meeting that men are sitting around a table and they're talking about how their experience in, in parenting, experience as a husband, how that was impacted by their walk with Christ over the last month. It's been awesome to see. Because those meetings, there's time set aside for honesty and transparency with other men sitting around the table where life is being shared together, where it's not happening on a regular and ongoing basis. A worthy walk is a shared walk. Thirdly, we know that a worthy walk is a set-apart walk. Remember what we've talked about here. Paul is trying to differentiate himself. He doesn't want to be lumped in with those itinerant philosophers, those magicians, those guys that are just putting on a fancy show. He doesn't want to be linked with those guys. 
And so he tells the church, he worked day and night so that he was never a burden. Nobody could look at Paul and say, you're just like those other guys. You're just out fleecing the flock. You're just like those other guys. And Paul's like, no. He wasn't standing in the square with his box where people were able to throw dollars in as he shared the gospel. That's not what he was doing. He says in verse 10, he says, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct among you. Again, these words point to this ongoing need for him to have a differentiation between himself and the culture. Now, we may not be like first century missionaries attempting to distinguish ourselves from the world around us, but we are all in some capacity sent out into a world that is drifting further and further away from anything that could be considered Christian. It's happening to each and every single one of us, and regardless of where our lives, our vocations, our callings, wherever it, call, wherever it takes us, we are called to be set apart. We are called to be different. We are called to be differentiated from the culture around us. Listen to what Peter said over in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter, looking at the church, says, God is holy, therefore that's your standard. You be holy, you be different, you be set apart, you don't be like the world around you. He goes on, he says in chapter 2, verse 9, talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. God, looking at his church, says you are a unique, different people. You ought to look that way. These are descriptions of this people who were set apart, who were holy, who were different. I love going back to see how the King James renders things because there's some things in the, in the old English that, that we lose in contemporary English. And, and so sometimes it's interesting just to go back and see how, those, how these things are rendered in 1611. And one of the things the King James Version talks about is that Christians are a peculiar people. Well, that's an interesting word. I understand why they probably, uh, why they probably took that word out in the newer languages because... You don't look at somebody as a compliment and say, you know, you are so peculiar. Nobody's going to receive that as a compliment. Husbands, don't look at your wife when she does something and say, that is so peculiar. She will not receive it even if you intend it for good. But I love here that God's people are described as peculiar. It's a fascinating word to use because we use it today to talk about something strange. But in the, in the old English, that word is used to describe someone or something that belongs exclusively to some person, group, or thing. Or to refer to a property, a privilege, that belongs exclusively and characteristically to a person. So if you're talking to your spouse and you say that he or she is peculiar and you're using it in 1611 language, that's actually a high compliment. You are peculiar to me. You are unique. You are, you are, you are mine. And I am yours and there is nobody else. It's actually a powerful word. Probably still should avoid it. God's saying to us here that we are his own possession. We don't belong to anybody else. We are uniquely his, and we are uniquely set apart by God for the work that he has for us. Once we recognize that, there's all the more reason for us to make sure that we are conforming ourselves to his kingdom and not conforming ourselves to this kingdom. 
because we are uniquely his. We can be a peculiar people and say amen when God says we are peculiar. So a worthy walk is a set-apart walk, but finally a worthy walk is a satisfying walk. You know, the last thing we encounter in these verses, there in verse 12, is this exhortation that we walk in a manner worthy of God. Again, it's what we've been talking about. We need to consider that he includes a reward there when he talks about this exhortation, that we walk in a manner worthy of God for a God who, listen to what he says, who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. The walk that is being described here, and, and again, when, when Paul uses the word walk here, it's not like Foster walking the kids around the, the sanctuary. That's not the walk that's being talked about here. The walk that, that this is referencing is, is our experience of a Christian life. Your Christian life is talked about as a walk. It is a journey. There is a beginning and there is a destination in mind. And you think about how the world understands our lives and how the world understands life it's so utilitarian and so unsatisfying. If you remove God from our story, then our story no longer has an author. I think about that. To, to have a story with no author. Which means that our story has no author, and because it has no author, that means that our story has no greater purpose. It means that our story has no defined trajectory. If we really believe what the secular lie is, is that there is no God, there is no author, there is no creator, you are simply the sum of your decisions. How unsatisfying is that? And you're not only the sum of your decisions and how those decisions affect you, you are the sum of, of everyone else's decisions and how those things interact. Every interaction is simply a, an opportunity for some sort of chemical reaction. That's how the secular world sees our lives as, as being completely disconnected from a creator, from an author, from one who is setting a trajectory in, from, in front of us. And if that is your life, man, what a miserable reality. If that's all your life is. That's nothing but misery. You have no purpose. You have no plan. There is no trajectory. There's no reward. But that's never the picture that is painted for us in the Word of God. And it certainly isn't the picture that is painted for us here in verse 12. He says we are walking. Walking it gives the idea of a journey. We are walking in a direction where our creator calls us into his kingdom and into his glory. There is a purpose, there is significance to our lives in this journey. But the beautiful thing is about this is that purpose and that significance is worked out in the regular, ordinary course of events of our lives. You know, we're, we're not like the video game characters on some epic quest to defeat the ultimate villain and rescue the princess. That's, that's not what our lives typically look like. Our lives typically take the shape of an ordinary yet peculiar people who go about rather ordinary lives with an eye toward the kingdom and an eye toward glory. And we look around the room, we're in Flintstone, Georgia, 
It's a rather ordinary place. It's a beautiful place, but it's rather ordinary. Not many movie stars or things like that uh, live here in Chattanooga Valley. Not a lot of famous politicians or powerful movers and shakers. It's just ordinary folks doing ordinary things, living ordinary lives. But those ordinary people are very peculiar because they are God's own possession and God is leading those people towards his kingdom and towards his glory. Ordinary people being led to an extraordinary destination. That is the painting that is painted of us. This is such good news for us because it redeems the ordinary of our lives for the extraordinariness of the kingdom of God. You say, I don't amount to much. You're going to a place where you do. You're going to a place where there is a kingdom and there is a king and there is glory and there is honor and there is eternity and there is life and there is holiness. That is where you are going as a child of God, regardless of how ordinary your life may seem today. Yesterday, several of us met to help work alongside of P52. It's a local organization, Christian organization. They help neighbors in need. I love what they do. Because we got some folks in our community who get into a bad place. And they get into that bad place and the neighbors start to get upset and they start to get in more and more trouble and it's an endless cycle, ultimately. Yesterday we worked at the house of a Vietnam vet and he had been taking care of his very sick wife. We don't know how much time she's got left. And the folks who were there will tell you it was ordinary. It was ordinary work. It was picking up trash and picking up junk that had accumulated over the course of this lady's illness. But as we finished, we learned something about the house where we were, doing ordinary work, throwing trash away. We learned, though, that that man was a non-believer. And so for that man who was a non-believer, what happened yesterday? The church came to his house and help throw things away that helped to ease that burden for him so that he could focus on taking care of his sick wife. And in that ordinary act, again, we didn't rebuild his house. We didn't, you know, it wasn't extreme home makeover. It was ordinary throwing junk away. But in that, there was a profound witness to him that we pray will one day lead to spiritual fruit. It was ordinary, unskilled, sometimes dirty, definitely smelly work. But God took the ordinary and he looks at it and he says this. He says, I'm calling you to a kingdom and I'm setting glory before you. I can't tell you how satisfying it is to encounter this in the word of God. Paul never says he's a tent maker in these verses, but we know he, this is the work that he does. But his words here tell us how satisfying it is, knowing that the work he is doing is leading towards the kingdom and the glory of God. You need to know today that if you're a follower of Christ, and even if you were serving Jesus in the middle of the most ordinary career, on the most ordinary day, that that ordinary thing ought to be one of the most satisfying things you can do because there's a promise and there's a destination in mind and it is the kingdom and it is the glory. So whatever your career, 
whatever your vocation, whatever your calling looks like in this life, you need to know that God is leading you to greater things. Maybe not necessarily even in this life, but your walk with Jesus is leading you to the kingdom and the glory forever and ever and ever, amen. And so if there's anything for us today in our ordinary lives, make the most of it to the glory of God. So if you teach, it doesn't matter if you're teaching college students, advanced mathematics, or teaching kindergartners how to count without using their fingers. If you teach, teach as unto the Lord. If you labor with your hands, then labor with your hands in such a way, with such a heart that is inclined to the kingdom. If you work at a desk or a cubicle or a home office, then do your work in such a way that God is honored and people can tell you're one of those peculiar Christians by the way you do your work and the way you interact with your coworkers. And even if your job today, your vocation, your calling today is to be a student, then wake up tomorrow and go to school with a clear understanding of who you are in Christ because even if you are a student, but you are a child of the king, even as a child, he is calling you eventually into his kingdom and to his glory. He is leading you in that direction. You know the outcome. So work today to walk in a way that honors the outcome. If it's helpful, treat your life like the guy on the tightrope. There's a right way to walk and a very wrong way to walk. But there's a right way to walk with a clear goal in mind. I love what Nick did on that tightrope when he wasn't over the 1,500 foot drop anymore. He was over that, that end of the tightrope where it was just a little drop and he took off running across the tightrope because he knew what the goal was. He knew where it was ended. He had accomplished what he had set out to do. I love the image, and I think, it's a, I think it's a great image for us. We walk we walk with clear understanding. We walk with clear direction, but there is a goal in mind, and it is a goal for us to race towards. It is a goal for us to work towards, and it doesn't matter what our lives are, what our vocations are. Those things are, are less important than making sure we do them to the glory of God and we do them with a the goal in mind. There's a right way to walk, and then there's a wrong way to walk. So as you walk, walk worthy of a God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk in community with other followers of Jesus. Walk sharing your life with other followers of Jesus. Walk sacrificing for the glory and for the kingdom. Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his kingdom and his glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for calling us a peculiar people. Not because we are strange to you, but because we are loved by you and we are a unique possession of yours. And Lord, we... We admit the world may look at us and they may call us peculiar, not because of our identity in Christ, but because they see us as strange. It was weird. 
I, I see it as so odd that we would give so much to one that they don't believe in. But God, we understand that the journey is leading in a direction, that our walk has an author, that we embrace the command of Scripture that says to keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And so, God, we approach our lives understanding that we serve a God who knows the outcomes. And so may we live every day in our ordinary experience to the glory of an extraordinary God. And so whatever our career, our vocation, our calling, whatever our situation in life is today, may we approach it in a manner that's worthy of you who calls us into his kingdom and his glory forever and ever. Father, I pray that in these moments, if there's any here today who've yet to, who've yet to begin their journey with you, they're walking in their own pathway. They're walk, following their own desires, their own will, their own wishes. That God, today they would look to Jesus in faith. They would see his sacrifice for their sins. They would see the resurrection of Jesus as the promise of hope, and they would put their faith and trust in Jesus, turn from sin and trust in Jesus. God, regardless of who we are or what we do. May we do it all for you. For it's the name of Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.